Hey everybody, Jesse here. I'm going to let you get into episode three of Dice Advice very shortly. I just needed to make a couple quick production notes and iron some things out. First and foremost, we want to say a big thank you for all of the downloads, follows, and shares over the last week for episodes one and two of Dice Advice. Super exciting, and it really means a lot to us, so thank you very much. Uh, We want to keep that going, so if you like the show, please like it, subscribe to it, review it. Would help quite a bit. Uh, Next thing I want to talk about is what The Seller Lore is. The Seller Lore is the network where all of our podcasts will be released. Even though this show is called Dice Advice, when you tell people about it, tell them to go to The Seller Lore on their podcatching app or our website, thesellerlore.com, Twitter at Lore Seller, Facebook at Seller Lore. Some exciting news. We also wanted to let you guys know we're releasing a new show. It's going to be a live play. We're going to drop the first episode of that on Monday, February 3rd. We haven't really settled on a title yet, but it'll be on The Seller Lore, so you know where to find it. The next thing is the release schedule. We're going to be releasing an episode of something every Monday. Right now, the plan is to release one episode of Dice Advice, and then the following Monday, release an episode of the live play, and back and forth we go. Next thing is we definitely need input. We thrive off of your questions, especially Dice Advice. We need questions, comments, quandaries, you know the drill. Any type of input we can get from you would be super appreciated. We want to make this show as much yours as it is ours. And last but not least, I just wanted to touch base on some credits that we may have missed in the first three episodes. We want to thank very much Masked Man for the use of our theme song, Coop underscore 90, from the album Chill Hop Daydreams. Also, our artwork was done by the very talented Jessica Williams. We'll have a link to her Instagram down below in the episode description. Super reasonable, a pleasure to work with, nothing but good things to say. And I'll get out of your hair and please enjoy episode three of Dice Advice. Welcome, and thank you for joining us once again on another episode of Dice Advice. We're a tabletop RPG podcast where we take your questions, quandaries, tales of valor and debauchery, and we digest them and we bring them back to you. I'm your host, Jesse, and to my left, I've got a row of my good buddies. Harry. I'm John. And DM extraordinaire. So. For the first time, we've got a guest on the show. This is a good buddy of mine. Uh, my name's John as well, but y'all can call me Leo. It's nice to meet you. Nice Thanks for thank having me. Thank you for sitting with us tonight, Leo. It's going to be hard. I'm probably going to call both of you John tonight, but we'll get over that. Yeah, let's jump right into it, guys. We've got a bunch of good questions. First and foremost, uh, let's go with one from Samantha. Samantha asks, what is the best way to handle character death as a DM? As a player, is it different with a long-running campaign? And I think this is a great one because, personally, I just went through one of these not too long ago. I don't know how long it's been for you guys, uh, but it's fresh. It wasn't that bad. Uh, Leo was actually there for it, too, so he he gets a little background info on it. (laughs) I don't want to be the first one to take a run at it, so let's open it up. So I've actually never had a legit character death in my as a player. However, I have handled character deaths as a DM. And 
I think it's a very complicated matter, and it's something, again, each DM is going to handle differently. From what I remember, I, I have a really bad memory, um, but I remember when we were playing in fifth grade, I believe I've had a couple character deaths at your hands, and I think they were handled pretty well. I don't have any memory of them being haphazard or like that I had bad feelings about it afterward. I mean, I think it really just comes down to, are we playing a game of stats or are we playing a game of storytelling? When it's a DM versus PC type mentality, you're, you're going to expect your characters to die. You go in that knowing that the DM's going to kill me. And you take that kind of as an assumption. I'm going to play this character. It's going to live out its life. It's going to die. I'm going to reroll a new character and get back into the fight. Whereas story-driven games... You get to know this character. You, you almost become intimate with that character and the, the way character thinks, the way character acts. It becomes a part of you. And that character's death is way more impactful. I completely agree. And like, not to just jump right in with it, but I'm kind of frothing at the bit. But the last one that I had, I was playing a character called Milo, and he was a Goliath Barbarian. He, he died a death of a thousand cuts, basically, by the hands of a bunch of kobolds down an alleyway. And I had only played him for like three sessions, I think it was, maybe over the course of a month and a half. And it wasn't bad for me at all. Like you said, I hadn't played him long. I didn't invest much time into him. He was kind of a grog ripoff of Critical Role just for ease of play. Um, I wanted to play a Barbarian. But had it gone on for six months, seven months, it would have been a lot more impactful. Well, here's my question to you. What was the reason for the character to die? I mean, was it legitimate? Well, mechanically, I would say yes. Now, here's where we're going to kind of go into the nitty gritty. And I'm not talking crap on that DM. He's a fine DM, but he's kind of made it clear to us that he's not like a story oriented DM. He's more of a beat stick DM and he likes to generate uh, interesting encounters. So the reason the character died was I made a bad decision as a player. That makes perfect sense. So there was no narrative kind of justification behind it. There was no reason for it to happen other than the fact that i made a bad move two, two things together two things together you you made a bad move and all the roles were against you that's true that is true almost all of them if you go back and look through the account of it all three quarters of the roles were bad and then at the end when you rolled your death rolls they were horrible with a one yeah, the one, the one sealed, the one sealed the fate actually, because when you roll a one, you fail two. Your last roll was a one. Yeah, I, I failed, <laughs> I failed one death save, and then I rolled a natural one for the other one, which fails two. See, and because that's kind of what I was gonna, the the avenue I was gonna approach is, you got to think about. Okay, so back to our, the main thread that I keep coming to, collective storytelling. We come to the table to like have a shared experience and you're as a PC, you're spending time creating a character. Maybe you've put a little bit of time and effort into it, or maybe you just, you know, randomly generated it, whatever. Let's say that you spent some time on it. I think that that death, if it's going to happen, it needs to happen for a reason. And I want, and I would hope that the DM would think carefully about whether or not that character needs to die in, in, in order for the story to progress. And I think Harry said it best in, in one of our previous sessions, like the decisions need to advance a story. And if the death of this character advances the plot, then I can get behind it. But if it's just arbitrary and the DM hasn't put any thought into the actual 
event itself of this character dying, regardless of whether or not you play the character for one session or six months of session, you know, it's your character. And if we, I mean, I don't know, this might be a little too romantic, but if we are investing ourselves into this collective experience, I would think that we enter into a social contract and the DM should understand that as well. I'm going to treat your effort and energy that you've put into this with respect. And therefore, I'm not just going to arbitrarily kill your character. And on the flip side of that, I would say you have to be a good player and not a dick. Because mm. if you're a dick, I would completely understand the DM just killing you off. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I totally agree with all of that. I don't think I, I don't think I fit the dick category in this one necessarily. Not, oh, I mean, I wouldn't assume that. I'm not above, I'm not above it. Every once in a while, I do something that deserves to die for. Um, this one was a bad decision on my part. And again, like Leo said, it was bad rules. Basically, I think I just pursued an enemy down an alleyway and basically walked into an ambush. And then I didn't retreat when I had the chance. Now, wow. here, here's the other thing that I want to say in conjunction to John's point. When a player makes a bad decision, he's not being a dick per se, but he makes a bad decision. Is it our responsibility to do some type of like deus ex machina kind of thing and like rescue them from that death? Or like, do we at that point salvage the death and try to make it meaningful? So I think uh, Leo made a great point when he brought up the fact that you were rolling bad. Very bad. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't think the DM should be your, your guardian angel. I'm going to be on that. Perhaps, perhaps in the earlier levels, if you're dealing with new players, um, we first started the campaign um, with Dragonlance. I, was, I didn't know how long anybody's played. I wasn't really sure if you guys were going on to the, you wanted a more aggressive campaign or if you wanted something more handheld. And so I kind of tampered back the encounters and just kind of got the flow of you guys. But that being said, if one of you jumped into lava, that's your, <laughs> I can't do anything about that. I'm not going to imagine lava is not going to magically disappear. You're not going to get fire resistance. <laughs> you're you're going to die. And the other characters like, they're going to look at you and go, wow, that was a stupid mistake. I'm not doing that. We're not jumping in lavas, guys. But like Leo said, you know, there, there's, you've rolled bad. Like, we can't save you from, you know, your roles. Um, as a DM, I love and I institute the DM screen policy. You don't get to see what I roll. You don't get to know what I'm rolling. I agree. A whole hard and, and And that allows me to protect you more than it is to hurt you. Same here. And it's it's not if there is any fudging going on, that's that is how the sausage gets made. It's it's and again, it goes back to the thing we say every time it's all about the story and the collaborative building of it. And if that helps the story, then the DM has every right to fudge that role. That's a whole nother conversation too. fudge roll. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. roles. I think Saul made a fair point in, in saying like. It's not, it's not the DM's job to be your guardian angel, and I don't, I don't think necessarily the Deus Ex Machida is a is a cliche for a reason. It, it doesn't work, you know. I mean, that's not real legitimate storytelling. Well, I guess you can make the argument because it came about as <laughs> you know early storytelling. That's why it came about. But I mean, nowadays that's not really what we think of when we think of storytelling, and. It's not the DM's job to be your guardian angel. And I love the fact that you support the DM screen and, and what you guys are saying, like it, it's to help 
it's to help the players more than to hurt them. The rules and these guidebooks that all helps tell the story, but the DM has, you know, he's the one controlling it. And you can you can use the dice rolls as much or as little as you want. I mean, that's you have the power there and you're you're helping craft that story. I think Jesse I think Jesse learned a lesson there. Oh, I sure did. You grew as a player from that experience, for sure. That remains to be seen with the character I'm playing now. But I will say, <laughs> I will uh, you say. learned you learned to uh, to be more uh, more discerning in your decision making. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. And, that, and again, that was a character decision more so than like a bad player move, I guess. I mean, yeah. I'm lumping it into bad play, but that character was a was a brick shit house, and he had you know. <laughs> well, that goes into the whole social contract. Like you, your DM respects the life of your character and doesn't kill your character because you've invested the time. And maybe, just maybe, you know, you you kind of got what you paid for there. <laughs> I, I, I agree. <laughs> and again, no no hard uh, no hard feelings to our hardworking DM over there in that game. Um, no, no, I, he was busting I, his ass trying to come up with all kinds of stories. And you know, y- your guy walked down an alley and died a thousand knives you know, like, actually, I really thousand like, knives. um could you could you elaborate on that because i really think that that that's a really good point i really like you bringing up the fact that the player grew with the death could you elaborate on that for us because I, I think it's a good well point. what i what i mean is what i mean is i like you know we were just walking down the street in town and we weren't I don't know. Maybe, maybe that, maybe that session we were feeling a little stale, and there, there was nothing happening coming from the the DM, and he threw this one thing at Jesse and I. Uh, a cloaked figure walks past you and grabs you by the sleeve and says, "Follow me," in a in a low, dark voice. And so he did, but Milo's a goofball, and I should have known better. He had oatmeal and I went, ears. and I went too. So I know I learned a lesson for sure, but maybe it was me that did the learning because Jesse played his Ooh. character the way he should have. I shouldn't follow. Well, I'm I'm just glad that Mazak made it out of there because I feel like that game is probably going to wrap up. The DM actually discussed the fact that he wasn't really feeling. Uh, coming up with more story, he said, "If you guys want to do a beat stick thing where I throw waves and waves at you, that's." we can continue to do that, but I'm kind of burned out. And, um, you know, we kind of backed off of that altogether. But I'm glad to kind of see that Mazak made it out of there because I feel like it's more legitimate to pick up a character that lived in a, in a campaign and pick him up, as silly as that may be, to pick him up and put him somewhere else than it would be oh, yeah. for me to resurrect Milo for something else later. I, 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 now that Milo is dead, Milo is dead. For me, that's just... And uh, John, uh, John, no, John, original John, what's our, uh, what's our tagline for the podcast? <laughs> At your table, anything goes. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I do. I, I, I want to give a shout out to, um, well, I guess, spoiler alert, kind of. I don't know if I should say it, but the Adventure Zone handles this particular situation in one of their story arcs very well. And uh, I mean, I think that, again, it goes back to my original point of, you know, it does the death progress the plot? And is it, is it a valuable element to the story, and does it create you know more connection with the 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 players and whoever's maybe listening 
you know, because that's that's what you want, right? You want some sort of it, it, this is a shared experience, and I, I think they handle it really well. And one of the great things is, you know, they have a cast, and you know, one of the characters died, and then they were able to kind of inhabit the role of another character, and the story went on. So I think that's a, I think that's kind of part of the question, right? I don't know how to deal yeah. with the aftermath, and and so I don't think, of course, you, well, I had I had thoughts on that too. Sure, I used to. When I used to, um, I used to run a lot of games in my in my youth, and I I looked at character death from a whole different perspective than I think you're looking at it from. And maybe you know, in retrospect, I was being irreverent, but I mean, life is cheap in the real world. It really is, unfortunately. And uh, I think that's the way we looked at it then. And when I was a dungeon master, I would keep. There was always NPCs in my uh, campaigns, and I would always keep character sheets for them. And when your character died, I would either let you choose an NPC character sheet or I'd hand you one. And that was how I handled character death. It was inevitable. Yeah, it was inevitable. And so I prepared for it, and I prepared well for it. Because if you weren't careful, you were going to die. And when you did, you had to play one of my NPCs. You were allowed to make a new character, and I would take it from you. And when the time was right, maybe we can incorporate that. But I yeah, guess, but you weren't, I, you weren't trying to jam that character into, uh, oh, yeah, you guys just happened to meet this guy at the tavern right nope. after your first character died. Nope. Gonna work him in when nope. Him. Right. Roll D6 for, a, for an NPC sheet. Have a nice day. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I don't even think that's necessarily irreverent. I think that's a, a brilliant because you know there there's there's consequences in this world for making bad poor choices, and I think that's kind of the the point you guys are making. And, and I get that being very yeah. practical about it. Then, yeah, exactly. as a as a player who's never lost a character, I know I would be very sensitive to losing Hagar Hellfire. He's near and dear to my heart. Of all the characters I've created. I, I live, breathe, and sleep with this one. And I know Jesse, for example, he has little figurines made up of his character. I'm so jealous. Yeah. I want a figurine of my guy so bad because so I'm, balls deep. I'm balls deep in my character. And I, I think there's a balance and there's an understanding that the DM, Saul really did say it best. He's not your best friend. He's also not your worst enemy. But you have to be a good player and play the game in a way that protects you and advances the story. And uh, I would be so devastated if I lost my character. I mean, I probably would shed a tear or two, just like I'm very, very close with the person I've created, the alter ego, who I get to live another life through. I mean, he comes to life once a week when I sit around this table with you guys. And um, I would hate to see him go. I've invested so much into this this person. So, I mean, I think it's it would be an abuse of power to see a DM kind of just willy-nilly destroy a character and like, oh, well, you fell in the trap, you're dead. But I also understand the balance that if you do make... The DM can't save you with an act of God. If you fall into a pit of daggers or, you know, there's spikes, you know, this and that. There's only so much a DM can do, and he has to be true to himself. Like Saul said, he can't be your guardian angel. At the same time, he has to balance it with 
not being out to kill you from day one or anything. I love how Saul definitely coaxed us in, like just little sweet little baby ducklings. Like, okay, you know, <laughs> you guys, you learn to swim, keep it up. But at a certain point, you have to be responsible for your, your character's decision making. I'm 100% with you there. And I think you brought it back around nicely to like Ouroboros, the question altogether. At the end of it, she says, is it different with a long running campaign? And I think, hell yes. Because I feel the same way about Benjamin that you do with Hagar. I really mm-hmm. didn't have too much of a problem losing Milo. It was it was fresh. I didn't put much thought into him. But if Ben died, it would be an issue for a while. I, I, I've got some backup characters ready, but I don't know what kind of character I would shove into this game. You know, it would be. A- I was in the same spot as you. The same kobolds were attacking me, and I really like you. You're saying you didn't have a lot in Milo, and I get that. But I, I, I mean, I haven't played in a while, and Mazak is my first character in a long time. So that's the difference too. I was literally on the edge of my seat, dude. And yeah. that last couple uh, death saves, when I when I did save, I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> I almost cried. <laughs> I had a backup character ready to go for that game. I was like, I wanted to play. I think you guys actually saw one session of them too. It was a one shot that we did. Uh, Kate Ashworthy, the halfling rogue, uh, mm-hmm. arcane arcane archer. I was chomping at the bit to play him. So. You know, I probably would have started the game that way. I just decided to run with Milo for ease of play, and I was kind of itching to play a barbarian. And I'm rambling. I'm sorry. No, um, I actually think it's a really like I would be really excited to play as a PC in, Leo, in Leo's campaign because that excites me. The idea of like death being such a crucial thing. Oh shit! I fucked up. Now I'm shot with an arrow and I'm dead, and there's no like saving me. And now I have to play as one of his PC NPCs. Like that's actually pretty exciting to me. But I think it's a contract yeah. that like I feel like Leah would tell me, hey, I'm not going to save you if, if you're my, one of my, in my campaign. Well, and... <laughs> I have. I have. But mm-hmm. only when it was like plausible and practical and, and, mm-hmm. and, not, and not, not like, you know, in any way cheesy. Mm-hmm. The, cool, the Kool-Aid man busts through the wall and saves the day. <laughs> no. Gotcha. No. Well, I mean, no. the, the important thing, too, is I think we all go into any new campaign as a player character with the, the understanding, like, you know, death is exists in this world. And there are rules about death and what how you deal with PC death. So there's there, there's always a threat there. But I think what the question asker is kind of leaning more towards and what we are kind of dancing around is what value do you place on death and and like how relevant is it to your campaign and is it is it in the forefront or is it more of like in the background right i mean that's kind of what we're looking at like yeah. what's what's the value what kind of value do you place on death in your campaign and is you know what's the probability of your characters actually dying mm-hmm. death is all around us but it what's the probability that you're you're going to experience it can I can I talk to you guys about a, pe- a previous encounter you guys had and that I kind of altered to save you? Yeah, please do. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm excited. So, <laughs> Kadar, when he had summoned that giant skeleton, um, I looked at your stats and I created everything and I was I thought I had made it pretty balanced until it landed the first blow and I realized that um, while I thought you could recover pretty well. You, you just the damage output was way too high without a dedicated healer. 
Yep. And, and that's something that we should have prepared for possibly better, knowing that the healing capabilities are limited in that campaign, which mm-hmm. was, which was front loaded, which is not your fault. And I think it kind of speaks volumes to your skill level as a DM too, because you recognize that on the fly and adjusted it. I'm kind of, I'm interested to see how, if you're willing to part the curtain that far. So what I, when I first rolled the dice, I had, I originally had it was like 46 uh, worth of damage, and he had a very low like attack bonus to hit. And I think we were like level four or something, or maybe three. Yeah, we were we were not that advanced. No, so I I looked at your armor classes and your skills, and I was like, okay, so he's not going to hit very often. When he does, it'll be scary. And so what I did was after he hit a couple times, and you guys the rolls were kind of mediocre, but they were still like kind of staggering to you. I altered it to be from four die six to, I think it was a die eight plus four. And I made him just hit a little bit more often. So I increased his attack bonus just to kind of keep you guys on edge. So you'll get hit more often, but it was for less damage. I, I remember that fight as being super suspenseful for me. And I, uh, again, I'm not trying to, you know, brown nose or anything because i know you're still our dm but it, it, i think you handled it really well because i didn't have any inkling that that happened when the fight was going on yeah um, and, well and the stakes felt real you know well don't forget the gods do exist <laughs> in the machine they haven't abandoned us <laughs> i mean well in the game they do exist so you've always got That's, that as the dungeon master that is true i love that that is a great explanation that is like a wizard. That is like the wizard explanation. A wizard did it. A god did it. I mean, it. it's I a little it. cheap, but you're trying <laughs> to save lives here. And, 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 you know, character sheets are in the balance. So you've got to like, <laughs> okay, okay. The god has now made this enemy's damage one quarter of what it was. Mm-hmm. It j- just diminished it. It's what, basically what you did. Yeah, essentially. See, now I kind of I agree with that, but I kind of like the fact that I didn't know it. I mean, I, I don't mind knowing it now, but I think during that fight, it would have kind of not cheapened it per se, but it would have made me feel less suspense knowing that yeah. he had a little bit of a safety net. But let's let's put the kibosh on that question, because I feel like we all like to bloviate, but I want to finish it off. So the best way to handle character death as a DM, I think, is be respectful of their time into the character. Make sure it advances plot and or is a result of their actions. Are you over there taking notes, host? Uh, no, no, sir. No, sir. Oh, I'm my out. God. You're doing I, such a great job. I haven't been drinking lately. Or, uh, <laughs> oh, or, that, that or, explains or, it. Or, uh, or imbibing in, in, in other recreational things that I really enjoy. Because, uh, you know. Like sucking cotton? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm still that sucking cotton, that cotton. Boy. Rip that cotton, son. Yeah, baby. Shaking the bush, ball. Shaking the bush. Grip it and rip it. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, as a player, our best advice how to handle it is realize that your DM is not your best friend. He's not there to protect you and kind of take it on the chin. I feel like I walked away from the Milo death pretty well, but that, again, was just because I didn't have too much invested in him personally. Um, so we didn't really give too, too much on that. But I think it is certainly different in a long-running campaign, and that's just to be expected. Any last uh, thoughts on that one before we move on? Uh, yeah, don't roll a one when you're death. <laughs> <laughs> the one piece in, of advice. Invest in a lucky feat. 
Oh, and and actually to circle back to Leo's point too, it let it let it affect you as a player and let you grow from it. I mean, that's a good point for sure. You know what? I do have another question on this. Sure. What if you gave your characters hero points to alter their fates? Hmm. Kind of like a get out of jail free card that they can cash in. Yeah. So it's like you roll one on a death save. I use a hero point to stay to to negate that one, so I have to re-roll. So it's kind of like the lucky beat, but you just each get one lucky point or something per session. I just felt a great disturbance in the force of all the a bunch of a, a lot of buttholes across the country tightening up. Yeah, at the, at, real at the purists mentions. are not going to be happy with that. <laughs> right. Yeah, at your own I mean, table, th- at your own every, risk. Every, every player. So you're saying each PC gets one quote unquote hero point or whatever you're going to call it per session that you can basically cash in to change the outcome of something? Not changing the outcome, the just like a re-roll. Just a re-roll. A re- a re- one re-roll. Yeah, like a mulligan. He could really give you an existing mechanic. He could really give you a luck point or an inspiration yeah. point or something. Yeah. And he could, he could homebrew it that the inspiration that he gave you for good role play could be used on the death saving throw. That would be an easy way to do it without alienating a bunch of purists, for sure. I think that's, I mean, it's kind of like giving a handicap to a novice. You know, I think that's uh, yeah. I, I think I that's respectable. I think the death saving throw is already generous enough. I mean, I don't know. Like, <laughs> tell me, tell me if I'm wrong. But once point. you get to zero, like let's this is for the purest aspect of it. I mean, mm-hmm. once you get to zero hit points, you roll three times to see if you live or die. Right above ten. Yeah. So, so I'm a big fan of three point five, where I could get down to like negative thirty six. It was amazing. <laughs> You can still do it in 5e, but you got to be really careful. because I think you, you can't go beyond half negative, uh, half of your total HP, then you're like automatically dead or something. I'm not sure if it's mm-hmm. half or the full number, but but yes, it's oh, like is it, you get, yeah, it might something be like that. It might be your full hit point. I, I'm not I'm not sure. So, uh, Lisa. I, Lisa's been slacking lately. We got to get her on. Oh, the intern? Yeah. Where's my <laughs> coffee? <laughs> we, we, we don't pay her enough, but anyway. Well, she's on strike. Let's, let's talk <laughs> hey, she's it. getting paid with experience points. She's got, she's got a bunch of hero points she can cash in. <laughs> she needs to cash in on some deodorant. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> she's coming back. She's coming back. All right, thanks. Thanks, thanks, Lisa. Yeah, she says it is the full full HP, but uh... <laughs> God bless you, Lisa. All right, thank you, Lisa. All right, you guys ready to move on to the next one? Yes, indeed. All right, this one comes from Assad. What non-D&D media have you used to inspire your campaigns? How much is okay to quote-unquote borrow? And I say quote-unquote because I've been doing that with my fingers in the air like a dipshit on a podcast. (laughs) Well done. I mean, I don't know. Uh, Saul recently, Saul, I went to visit him, and uh, he took me to a game shop recently, and I saw a Rick and Morty D&D set. Yes. And... It looks so much fun. I mean, uh, I I'm a big fan of it. Oh my god, we got to talk about that a little later. But it looks like so much fun, and you're playing right off of the show. That I think they already have pre-developed characters and all that. And it's like you, you're allowed to go as far as you want to. But I think if you want to really enjoy a story and use your imagination, you need to create something. Maybe not from scratch, 
But the more you use from someone else's imagination, the less you're going to invest into it. So if I already go into a storyline knowing the characters, I'm going to have preconceived notions about how this character would behave versus if I create this character from scratch and I use my entire imagination to, I think he would talk like this or he would behave like that. I think the more imagination and creativity put into it, I, I, I don't want to say the more fun you would have because that Rick and Morty looks hilarious. If you're a Rick and Morty fan, you're still going to have just as much fun, a different sort of fun than if you use imagination from scratch. Well, you're not as inve- you're not going to be as invested in it. That's all. Right. It's cheaper. It's cheaper fun. It's quick. That's why I bought it because I have little kids and I want to I want to cut their teeth on that because they love Rick and Morty. I mean, I'm I'm confessing that I let my children watch Rick and Morty, <laughs> but I think it's hilarious. I'm raising my kids on the philosophy of you know they need they need to know what not to do. So they don't mm-hmm. cuss, but they do hear cuss words. I mean, everything That's... doesn't cuss. Really. We could we definitely could have used your help on our pilot episode because that was one of our <laughs> main discussion points was how to run games for children. We won't delve back into it, but that uh, you know that, that's a good that's a good angle on. When when question. adults apologize to my children for cussing in front of them, they look at them and they say, "We know not to cuss. It's okay. You can go ahead and be an adult." <laughs> that's awesome. Awesome. That's, that's really, I do like that. Because you can't shield your children, but I mean that's a whole another topic. I would like to say this was a great question, and I'm excited to talk about it because I think for me particularly, I loved seeing in the player's handbook, and I think also in the Dungeon Master's Guide, their appendices uh, for inspirational reading. And that's a place where I got a lot of good ideas for just my own leisurely reading, you know, Sword of Shannara, stuff like that, and Game of Thrones. I mean, there's there's so much fantasy out there already. And then people do great things with it. I'm trying to think, Name of the Wind. I think that people love that. Uh, I've never, I haven't gotten into it yet. But talking about places to find inspiration, I think it, starting with fiction, fa- fantasy writing, and there, there's some, there's some classics out there. Lord of the Rings, you know, the His Dark Materials series. I mean, there's, there's so much fodder, you know, grist for the mill that you can just kind of like pick up and sink your teeth into to get ideas to get to spark some sort of exciting new avenue to follow and i don't think necessarily it matters if you're quote unquote borrowing i mean do whatever you want it's your world man we're just living in it i i I totally agree with that i've dm for a very large range of people i've dm for very talented people very creative uh, very well versed we'll use the word educated but very intellectually curious then i also just role pl- i've dm'd for people who weren't as versed or articulate and so creativity is a big thing and that being said having some pre-designed stuff like i played the star wars series in the in the uh, die 20 realm and it was amazing it was great it was having all that lore accessible having all the books accessible i didn't have to you know, create anything on the fly, but I had people who were really passionate about Star Wars and they wanted to play it and they could just jump right in and create their own original characters. And there wasn't this like urge to be super creative and super deep that that could be challenging to people and very intimidating. They just wanted to play a Jedi. That was it. That was simple. 
they didn't have to like dive into you know their origin stories so deeply they're like i was trained at the temple and i did this and whereas i know our group that we're playing with right now we want to create the origin story their ancestry and <laughs> everything involved in the world around them and it's great and it's in great detail and great depth but not every not every character has that ability and they still want to stretch their imaginations so pulling from those use those resources i think it's just astounding and i, I think it's great and i have no problem somebody want to create uh you know aragorn from lord of the rings saying i'm going to be aragorn but change my name to bob Fine. <laughs> i think you might have stumbled across one of the only ips where that is the case with star wars though and I'm not trying to negate your point. It's a good point anyway. But I think with that kind of rich backstory, like mythical lore of Star Wars, we don't really care about the character as much as we do what, what they are and what they do. I, I don't know. I, I, that's, a, that's a whole other podcast to, to get into, I guess. Um, yeah. I did want to say, say, just with my, my level of borrowing, I'm almost constantly borrowing things, except I don't really think I'm taking them uh, right off the page. Um, just an example, when I did my campaign, that did, again, to reference it, the one where you guys started in the jail cell, a lot of the world maps I just went through and I took uh, screenshots of fantasy art that really just spoke to me. And I didn't read anything about any of it. I just took screenshots of stuff that I loved. And then basically when I did my world map, I said, well, this is where that swamp city will be. This is where that mountain city will be. Um, and I actually do the same thing for PCs. As I'm going through and I'm looking at fantasy art, I'll take a screenshot of a character that really you know, jumps out and does something. And I don't play that character per se, but I use it as a jumping off point to, well, what's that guy's story? And then, you know, I'll, I'll eventually, like I, with Benjamin, maybe I'll get some art commission for myself. I'm not going to steal somebody else's artwork, but I use it as an inspiration point. And I think that's totally fair. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that. Even if you're stealing, uh, <clears throat> borrowing... <clears throat> <laughs> a picture speaks a thousand words if that picture is talking to you and telling a story to you and you're using that story I, I, I think that's an awesome way to get your inspiration just by looking at an image I've never yeah. even heard anybody describe that that's how they would come up with something like that I really like that idea a lot, of, a lot of my characters are that way actually Benjamin was spurned by somebody who looked like a lot darker of a bard he looked like a bard kind of rogue he was sneaking a potion into a goblet and he looked kind of shysty about it but I just liked this look on his face, and I said, well, he looks like he was a noble born, and I kind of ran with that, and I didn't use the picture even for his physical appearance, but it, it was that little spark that kind of turned into Benjamin. I, dude, I feel that sentiment a hundred... I feel the same way. It's like, once I saw... I was searching for pictures of what my character might look like, I felt so much closer to him when I could see a visualization of, like, this is how he might behave, once I got a, a physical picture of him in my hands. But, um, but I don't want to get lost. What you said about borrowing, I really fuck with that because no matter how original you try to be, at the end of the day, there's still only seven archetypes for storytelling. So no matter how creative or how original you try to be, every story, every written, has the same seven guidelines to it of overcoming a monster, tragedy comedy quest reborn rags to riches so it's like there's 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 only so much room for originality and your ability to take something that's already been done before and to put your own spin on it kind of like we were talking about music before there's only so many notes or chords available 
on each instrument. But the way, let's say, a Jimi Hendrix or a Led Zeppelin decides to play it could spark a revolution of like, wow, this is so original, even though it's the same chords and notes that we've always had. Beethoven had the same chords as Chopin, but he played it differently. That's a good point. And if, if, no, if nothing else, the Simpsons already did it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Seth MacFarlane, if you're listening, if nobody else has told you this, everything on your show is a copy of The Simpsons. We see you. <laughs> We'd love to have you as a guest on the show, though. <laughs> yeah. Hey, come on down anytime, Seth. But I, I agree with Harry. Like, there's nothing new under the sun. And I think that some guy, some old guy said that, and his name was uh, William Shakespeare. But even even that was a copy of something out of the Bible, you know? So Right. And and let's get real. If you're if you're sitting at a table with your friends and you're playing D and D, who the fuck cares if you yep. s- borrowed something that's already out there? I mean, th- this is just for you and your friends. Now, if you want to go make a podcast and like get sponsors and try to make money and become a big name, you probably should be careful about what you use and how you credit it. But right. this, that's just a caveat. Got to thread that needle, you know. But Harry Potter, that story has been told before. It's, 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 there's, there is no original story that is just going to, wow, this is just so original. It's like, it all has the same basic guidelines that we, you know, we want the start and the finish, the hero, the journey. It's all the same. So your, your ability to invest into the story, I think, I think it does rise with as much imagination as you put into it. But it doesn't I don't I don't think the word cheapens is fair or accurate because you can have just as much fun. We're we're riding off of Dragonlance, which is a book series, you know, we read years ago. And it's like I, I don't feel although I have a little bit of knowledge of the future, just a hair, because our DM has the ability to take the story wherever he wants. Time travel. He's, he he's, brought doc, he's brought Doctor Who to our fucking fantasy story, <laughs> and we're time traveling like a motherfucker. And it's like it's fantasy sci-fi now, and it's like it's 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 his own story. He took something and he put his own spin on it, and it's beautiful. And it doesn't match up with the book word for word at all. It's his own original masterpiece. So I think there's I don't think there's anything wrong with borrowing. And if, even if you played it word for word and you guys were having fun, well, fuck it, have a good time. Because I look forward to playing this Rick and Morty at some point in the future with my guys and fucking just being silly and like having just complete silly fun and um, maybe not having the same intense. Like my blood gets pumping when I get to play my character in Dragonlance. Like I legit get, you know, excited yeah. about like, oh my God, it's time. But with Rick and Morty, it's like a drinking, silly, let's have fun kind of game. And the the excitement is just different, but it's still beautiful. I'm with you 100% there. I think we smashed that question into oblivion. Maybe that was too much of a softball for this crew. <laughs> so where, where do we land on that? Borrowed to your heart's delight? I think so, yeah. I think credit where credit's due, of course. You know, that's always important. But yeah, borrow and... And use what you can. I mean, use your resources, man. If you're not cheating, you're not trying. <laughs> That's awesome.
<laughs> winner, winner, chicken dinner. All right, and then let's go ahead and move on to the next question. All right, this one comes to us from Ralphie. Is it okay for a DM to create a new race? And if so, would you, how would you go about it? For example, an orc-elf hybrid, and what would one do for stats? This is kind of meaty. This is a meaty one. I'd really like to defer to Saul for the Saul. This is the, like I was to... I was thinking the exact same thing. Where's Uncle Saul? <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, I was trying to find the book. So in third edition, there was a third party publisher that actually covered this really well. It was uh, I think it was the Green Ronin who did it. I actually got the book off of a rewards program, and it was amazing. And it covered half breeds, and it talked about. Uh, for example, a half gargoyle, which was a what happened when a gargoyle and a dwarf were able were to mate, because dwarves and gargoyles could apparently mate in the in in, in their world, <laughs> and it was really fascinating. I loved it actually, and it what it did was it incorporated uh back in third edition they had the level adjustments for beast bestial races. So they included that in the text. With Pathfinder, they have the abilities, they release their guidelines for creating races, so you can easily create your own race. And I believe with D&D Beyond, they're actually in creating something to assist DMs to create their own race as well, if I, if I read the things right. But it, it's very fascinating. I, I think it's great. I think uh, the question is, you know, like Ralphie was saying, you know, what happens when you mix races? You know? If you get a halfling and a gnome, that might not be very different, right? But what about, you know, a uh, goblin and a giant? Right. And so the, it's a really truly up to the DM's discretion and the creativity that, that they can generate. And I would totally encourage players to uh, create something themselves and present it to their DM. And if, I would always encourage players to think with balance in mind. And if they can do the work for beforehand and create something balanced and i would say refer to the races presented prior as a guideline then it makes the dm's job a lot easier and they can just go yes this is believable this this appears balanced or i'm going to tweak this and that and we'll go let's create some lore for this obviously what i like about fifth edition is that they focus heavily on change the fluff not the mechanics so yes <laughs> I agree. So, it's 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 I, I I like that aspect of five E a lot. I know a lot of people mm -hmm. that um, really don't like that part of it. Um, I think that's kind of one of the overall issues that people have had with five E in general. But mm -hmm. I, you know, again at our, at your table, I I prefer five yeah. E. It's probably my favorite system that I've played yet. You know, if a gnome and a orc were to have have a child, maybe it'd be you know a a dwarf orc. But you can just use a dwarf. I mean, sorry, maybe a gnome orc, but you can use the dwarf stats. And you call him a right. dork? Yeah, a dork. You <laughs> <laughs> thought that joke yeah. was going to hit way harder. <laughs> God bless you. God didn't bless you. Hear, didn't you hear how timid I was? <laughs> he was waiting for the the applause. He paused yeah. for applause. Do we God have a track? Do we have a an audience applause track? A we should play crickets. <laughs> Read that. Everybody loves Raymond laugh track for that right there. <laughs> that's the, that's one of those creepy things where those people have been dead for like 50 years. They've been using that shit for that oh. forever. Oh, yeah, it's just creepy. 
I was just going to say, um, it's kind of awkward to talk about mixed races. I don't think that's appropriate for this content. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're okay. Are we? As long as we do the Assassin's Creed disclaimer that we're a diverse crew with, uh, you know, with multicultural backgrounds and beliefs, we're pretty much okay. I have a character with a little bit of a, pre- a little bit of a race race problem, don't I, Jesse? Just a little that bit. Guy. It was it, it was incidental. It was incidental as as we went on and played, but <laughs> it just happened. I've gotten the impression through the years that dwarfs are are racist. Many characters in fantasy world. I think they are. I think that's an established yeah, I thing. I can argue with that. Yeah. Dwarves are for the dwarves is one of my favorite sayings for years. Now, let me be exactly. contrarian. Let me be the contrarian. We can't just say that races aren't inherently evil, but races are inherently racist. So <laughs> <laughs> we can't backpedal. We can't backpedal too hard. We'll, we'll kind of, I'll, be, I'll be the anchor. Oh, interjection. The book that I was talking about by Green Ronin, was Bastards and Bloodlines, a guidebook to half-breeds. Nice. nice. I, I actually really enjoy that part of this podcast, too, if you could keep that going. like I think somebody bringing in some some type of uh, reference material or some type of shout-out just in general to support the community is fantastic. I love that. I've never heard of it, but I'm going to definitely look it up now. Green Ronin is great. I love their third-party resources. They create a lot for Pathfinder and 3rd Edition or 3.5. I've used Bastard and Bloodlines before. Uh, it has very interesting races in there. They have a half-unicorn, a half-mind flare. Just really interesting and very creative. Definitely so, use it as a source. You hear that, Green Ronin? That one's on the house. <laughs> new races and new monsters. I think it's absolutely beautiful. I mean... Talk about spontaneity of unexpected. I mean, wow. I, I think it's beautiful. And so I wanted, I did want to ask not to compound too many questions, but um, so would everyone generally agree that averaging the stats of like, let's say, you know, the orc and the goblin is a great example of, you know, large and small, blah, blah, blah. Would everyone generally agree that, that averaging the two characters, at least stat wise, would get you where you want it to be? Would you go ahead and create two whole new characters and average them? I would be, uh, I'm a little distracted by the anatomy of it to do the math, but, but, <laughs> but, but, in, but in all seriousness. Well, when a man loves a woman. <laughs> I always like the idea of a wild card, maybe like do an average, but then like roll some die, like maybe a D6, and if you roll a six, then you end up as like a mega hybrid or something like that. Some type of Ooh. mutation, some type of mutation mechanic in your. I like it, dude. Yes, but, but maybe even decrease the chance and make it a D eight, and if you roll an eight or something like that. But if you do complete the criteria, you can you can be this off chance of a mega hybrid who's got some weird attribute, or the or the opposite. Ooh. You roll that you roll that natty one on the on the D eight. <laughs> kill me! Someone kill me! Kill me. <laughs> it hurts. Or or just give it to him. What is life? <laughs> oh man, that, that character question. from three hundred. You guys are gonna help. Oh my god, I think Leo brings up a good point though. You might just want to give it to him because we all talk about the the statistical hmm. um, development of characters, but think about that goblin orc and their experience in society. Hmm. Oh. So you might have a character whose bloodlines are now intertwined, 
And this will create a powerful character concept. But how are other people going to react to this now new creation? Right. Not well. <laughs> I think that Dungeons and Dragons is, or I guess maybe any t- tabletop role-playing RPG where you have, you know, races, a multitude of races. I think it's one of the, one of the best avenues to explore this, the idea of race and how race is viewed by the rest of society in uh-huh. a safe space outside of the judgment and the social construct and uh, mores that kind of maybe sully that that exploration um and i think that's also one of the best avenues to have a diverse cast of characters and interact with different races and have that kind of a diversity in storytelling right i mean that 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 seems to me like one of the most positive aspects of this with regards to this kind of social idea that we're kind of tiptoeing around that in D and D you have the you have that the opportunity to kind of explore these things in a lower stakes setting. Does it make sense what I'm saying? No, I think it's, I think that's perfect actually. Okay, it kind of bounces off of what you were suggesting too. I I, I I do I think that's great and I think that's a great point because like what if you do have some sort of Romeo and Juliet type of scenario going back to borrowing mm. a dwarf prince and an elvish princess fall in love. You know how simple is that? You know, I I agree that it, it allows you to explore that in a in a low stakes environment because the way my character acted toward uh, Milo's replacement, he really did. He he was just out and out rude. It was a dwarf being racially rude to a halfling, and I think oh. it was appropriate. I think it was appropriate. I, I, it was appropriate. I was like, you're in. He's just. I treated him as though he was an inferior frivolous he had nothing important to say right i'll also throw out there i really like the point of um getting to explore the uh, the uh, races that you don't interact with typically in D. like for example hagar was the first tiefling in my and i've ever partied up with and i as a player was kind of like i don't know how that's going to work i don't know much about that race period and just to see him get fleshed out the way he has has been awesome it's cool because you know if you don't know anything about tiefling or orc or whatever race that you're going to be portraying as a player character you have to read about them and you have to learn about them and then you you i mean if you're if you're invested you'll read about them you'll learn about them you'll you'll kind of develop a backstory and i think the very act of doing that it it encourages the unconscious for more tolerance you you know what i'm saying like i think that the act of investing yourself in a and putting yourself in someone else's shoes Hmm. so to speak looking at it from another point of view it's facilitating that that tolerance in your unconscious right so i think that and i'll probably come back to this many many times throughout this podcast but i i'm i'm a huge advocate of dnd as a way as a as a tool for so many um, social training ground. Social training ground. That's so great, man. That's a perfect. Yeah, I'm sorry. I feel like I. I feel like I step on your toes when I shoot things out there, but I. Oh, no, that's awesome! So it wires your mind for tolerance. Exactly. Um, and, you know, not a, not only the, the the interactions, the social interactions, the team building, the uh, collective storytelling. I mean, I joke around, but me, you know, me and some of the soldiers that I worked with, 
used to play D&D on a Friday afternoon right before we had like a long weekend for a holiday or something. And uh, I always told him like, hey, if, if somebody comes along and says something, I'm just going to tell them it's professional development. And then I'm going to launch into the many reasons why, like collective storytelling, uh, coming up with creative solutions to complex problems, teamwork, social interaction. Uh, you know what I'm saying? So many things. All right. So let's uh, let's go ahead and wrap it up. I do want to introduce a new segment to the show. I think it'll be just a little bit of fun. I don't want to spend too much time on it because I know we've already gone long. And thank you guys if you've been sitting there uh, with us. We're going to we're going to call this segment homebrew items. Do they suck or are they red? I might scrap, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I might, yeah. I might scrap that all together. But uh, homebrew items, do they suck? Are they red? This first item that we're going to discuss uh, was made by a gentleman named Amir. I'm not going to share his whole name because I don't know if he's cool with that. Um, it was published just to cover our bases. Uh, it was shared via Magwa's Magic Item Compendium. Copyright 2018, Knights of Vestile. Anyway, uh, the item is called, and if anybody's better with Latin, feel free to correct me, but uh, the item is called Veritas Aequitas. E pluribus unum. I think it's Aquitas. Aquitas. Veritas. Aquitas. Yeah, Boondock Saints, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Call absolutely. Back. Yeah. I didn't even think of it that way. Yeah. So <laughs> we're going to go through it pretty quickly because we're running long, but the item is labeled as very rare. It's, uh, it's a sword. Uh, there's a picture of it, which we will probably post to some type of social once this releases. The quick description is. A former paladin's longsword, corrupted by the many fights and wars of its past, have turned it into a sword of bloodlust and revenge. The words engraved along its jet black blade read its name, meaning truth and justice, two things it now has the ability to alter if attuned to it. Now, mechanically, it's a longsword. It has three charges per day, used to change the focus to add 1d6 necrotic or radiant damage to any attack made with the weapon until the focus is changed or a new day has arrived. While attuned, you have to pass a DC 19 wisdom save in order to put it away. DC 17 if it kills an enemy. In parentheses. Or take 1d6 psychic slash radiant slash necrotic damage depending on the charge focus. You're unable to put it away until you pass the save. So you get bonus damage. And this kind of goes back a little bit to what we were talking about with the curse. I mean, it seems like it's almost a cursed item at that point. I'm going to be honest, man. I think I would, I'm going to say it sucks because there... I mean, sorry to Amir, but okay. he's not, he's not a you, you did a great job. You put yourself out there. You, you, you created this thing. It's your, it's your baby. You love it. But um, we only got two choices here. It does, yep. Is it rad or does it suck? I'm going to say it sucks <laughs> because uh, it's a long sword that uh, only you get a D6 extra damage, but then you have to like do the DC save uh, or you take damage. I just don't think it's worth it. It sounds like a cursed item to me. Yeah, yeah, basically cursed. It either does one die six of damage, you get to put it away, or you take one die six of damage. Yeah, I would assume it does the long sword damage too, like the base. Right, the one die eight or whatever it might be, but the juice isn't worth the squeeze. I I completely agree with you. Equitus is the word for justice, equality, conformity, symmetry, and fairness. Wow. So I'm I'm looking oh, at the yeah. name of this weapon, and I'm thinking that you know it, it's its purpose is to create balance. So that's why it may that's why it may harm the wielder. 
are you guys interpreting the wording the same way that I am? It, you will only take that psychic slash radiant slash necrotic damage to yourself if you try to put it away and fail. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But so it's not it's so, not a short thing. So you could you could potentially just have it out all the time and be okay, and it'd be a a, a sword with some bonus damage. But I would imagine that if the DM is any is worth his salt, he'll probably use that against you in role playing terms. Like you're walking around the village holding off huge like disturbingly uh and intimidating yeah. longsword you hear the bells ringing no one listens to you because you have your sword out they're afraid you're going to cut them on the flip side is this tied to you though like i mean can you drop it it seems like let's see it requires if, uh... attunement to use and then i think that is it something to do with like that your physical I don't proximity see... to it I don't see anything about that. I think I think you could basically say you the same DC check probably to get rid of it as you would to put it away, and then you would only risk some psychic damage. If it was my game, I would probably amp that damage up like threefold. If it was you trying to get rid of it as opposed to putting it away. Well, no, so I ask this because it's a, it's it is a mechanic that as a DM I would be interested about. So if you were to let's say the ground underneath you is is collapsing. You have to grab and start climbing up a ladder. You have a sword in your hand. Fuck yeah! This is why you're the DM. Yep. Like how? I didn't even think of that. Can you can you drop it and just go? Like I would say, I would rule it that yes, you can certainly try to drop it. You would have to pass that DC check. You would either do that or take some damage. And then I think I think if you take that damage, you still don't get to drop it. No. I think you try again. What and if I'm putting you up against a sword master? Right, a blade master or something who disarms you. Do you take damage? Oh, that's a good point. I would say, yeah, I would rule it as yeah. <laughs> so, I, I think mean, Leo, I think you put it, you hit it on there. This is a cursed weapon, yeah. Well, I mean, well, I mean, read the description again a former paladin's longsword, corrupted, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's, I don't want this. It's okay. Pass. Hard pass. In that light, if it's a cursed weapon, I think it's good for that. As yeah. a player, you, you're not going to want the sword, but it's it's good as a cursed weapon. I think that it fits that bill perfectly. It's kind of good to start off with an item that yes. splits, splits the difference between the two the two options I've shoehorned you guys into, but I think it sucks right. and it's rad. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. It's, yeah. It sucks. It's, it's suckiness it's, is rad. It sucks that you can't use it, and, and it hurts you very bad. It, it, it sucks to use as a main weapon, let's say. It's rad as a, as a plot device for a DM to kind of work through and um, you know present as a challenge to the player. So as a cursed item, rad. Main weapon sucks. Oh, I couldn't have said it better myself. This would be like an awesome curse to like put on somebody who's just looting around, find a sword, and they're like, oh, this is so cool. You know, you pick it up, or and then you find out now you are like stuck with this thing, and this is oh, this is what happens. I mean, to you as, a, as yeah. a DM, have you ever had? I mean, I have, I know, I, I know we've all seen it, we've all fell victim to it. It's that lust for a magical item, <laughs> that that hunger for a <laughs> magical sword. Please bestow upon me some boon, oh DM, please. And if you just won't shut up, I will give you this. 
DM just tricked me with a magical item. Uh, Here you go. You had to have it. Gleaming runes. You might want to go get them translated. <laughs> so that being said, though, right? As a magic item, it does require a two-minute. So as a DM, you give them this weapon, right? Their do you, choice. Do you, however, provide two DC checks? Like, for example, oh. if I was to do this, prevent, give this to a character, they're obviously going to say, is it magical? And then I'm going to try to figure out what it does. And I have a very, like, low ball DC where they can roll, where they, you know, with their spell craft or, you know, depending on the, obviously it's 5e, so depending on the spell, you'd be able to go, okay, this is a magic weapon that you attune to and you can pick what type of damage. It's going to be psychic, uh, radiant, or narcotic, or necrotic. <laughs> and, but if they roll like a nat 20, you go, oh, by the way, it also has a drawback. That's perfect. Give them the, okay, hey, this is magical. It does 1d6 damage. Then you, ha- you have to attune to it. And then Six after they the spend a short rest attuning to it, then you're like, oh, by the way, this has this other aspect that, you know, is almost a curse or something like that. Like, like you said, if they roll a nat 20, then they can figure it out. But if they don't, then they're going to tune to it and then get be stuck with it, basically, until they can get rid of it somehow. I, I love that. And I think short of identify, then you would make it a little bit of a, like, I'd say a medium DC check. I'd say maybe like a 15, 16 to see if they can identify it with Arcana. But if they had identify, easy ticket. Do you think that someone could pe- possibly become a slave to this weapon? If they keep failing their checks, I think I, I think <laughs> I would rule it. I think I would rule it the way that uh, Saul so kind of like phrase the question. If they're trying to get rid of it, I would do it that you just have to pass that DC check. If you don't, you're going to take more damage than what the original punishment would be for just trying to put it away. But if they get rid of it, they get rid of it. I'd say. I say that paladins like spirit is in this sword bro he's like an oath breaker i like that and uh if you try to get rid of it and you fail your dc save a certain number of times say like four or five times before you short rest or long rest or something like that you know kind of balance it out then you're then you're uh how did you put it leo you become enslaved Enslaved, enslaved by it. Yeah. Like you would personally. wither. You would wither. The further away you got from it, you would wither. So what would in, what I mean, the way I'm imagining this, if I was the DM playing out this weapon and you became its slave, you, you try to get rid of it and then that's fine. You think you're rid of it and you don't feel right. But then the further away you get from it, the sicker and sicker you feel. And now you're convinced that you need to get it back because you're going to die. And now you found it and it's moving further and further away from you. And maybe I'm giving away a story that adds a complication to the party and to your yeah. campaign because you have to go yeah. find that weapon again. Yeah, we cranked the fuckery up to eleven. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, gonna crank, I'm gonna crank the fuckery up on you. You had to have that magic weapon. You had to have it. <laughs> the more you talk about this, the more I like this weapon as a campaign tool. So right, right. That's how I'm envisioning this. The whole campaign is this weapon. Now we don't know and, Amir's. We don't know Amir's like objective with making it either. So if that was his, if that was his objective, good job, sir. Well, that's what just blew up in my mind when I'm imagining what could happen with it. I'm gonna add another element real quick, though. Take it from John and, and Leo here. Uh, I like the slave thing and I like the possession thing, but here's a little interesting thing I think would be a nice twist to both of these things. If the character drops to zero, 
And you know how you traditionally do your death saves, right? For that character, they're not necessarily death saves. Like, the character uh, mechanically will still die, but the paladin will take that body. Oh, snap. The Oathbreaker returns. And then that becomes a boss fight or something. Would you, it, would you in, in turn, would you put the player's spirit into the sword? Would, this, would the player become the cursed item? Uh, mechanically, I mean, I, I would say that to resurrect the character, you're going to have to kill that Oathbreaker. Nice. Well, then the, the character's soul would be in the sword. Yeah. Was in the sword would come into the body of the character. Yeah. Like a genie cut. But Yeah, exactly. And But as a PC for, for mechanically, you'd have to make a new character. Really sorry. <laughs> Alrighty, guys. I, I could talk about it all night, but we have to call it a night. We made it awesome with our imaginations. <laughs> we sure did. <laughs> it's rad. Yeah, I agree. I'm changing my vote. It's rad. Right. Thank you, Amir, for your customizing. I don't think anybody summed it up like Jesse did. It's a great cursed weapon, but it would suck to be a main weapon. And if you fall for it, that's on you. Just kind of returning to our uh, our first discussion. It's about player responsibility yep. and accountability. All right. We want to say thank you, everybody, for joining us for another episode of Dice Advice. Let's take it over to our sponsors for the evening. Uh, sad to say, I don't, I don't see Slappy's Peanut Butter on the list. Hopefully they come back next week. Uh, but we do have Jim and Nancy's fancy jam jars. Back again. God Back bless again. them. I, I'm not sure how they're, how they're accumulating all these funds to spend on marketing, but God bless them. Uh, they're Jim, beautiful. Jim, Nancy, you make my dick hard every night. <laughs> Did you get Sam and Fran's fresh ham slices? No. Oh, do you, have, do you have the copy? Do you have the copy for Sam and Fran? Well, I, I, they had called. I thought they were done. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll get We'll get we'll, well get back. I've been we'll get back to that. France for years. My cousin's been using it. My brother, my aunt, my sister, my everyone I know is using Sam's in France. When Thanksgiving came around, they said, "Where's the turkey?" I said, "I got Sam's in France." <laughs> also, a quick shout out to Shady Larry's Audio Emporium, who provided me with my microphone and audio interface. God bless Shady Larry. Don't forget about uh, Jesse's new film. As the cotton gin turns. <laughs> it's coming soon to a theater near you. Shady Larry, so is it. Oh, get that man. cotton, girl. You get that cotton. Oddly enough, Shady Larry's is running the audio for that movie, so you'll be able to yeah. you'll be able to see the movie, but you won't be able to hear it. And it's just a uh, ninety minutes of uh, Jesse slow mo ripping a vape cloud and <laughs> get seeing it grow. <laughs> Shout out. I do want to uh, take some time to say thank you to a certain uh, musical artist. We kind of neglected to mention him in the first two episodes. Thank, we want to thank very much Masked Man for the use of our theme song, Coop underscore 90. Domo arigato, Mr. Robato. We really do appreciate it. I got a hold of him on Instagram, and he was very accommodating. All right, let's, uh, let's walk it out. Once again, I'm Jesse. Harry. John. Saul. And our special guest, Leo. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome at our table. All right. Thank you guys for joining us. Catch us next time on another episode of Dice Advice. Until then, slather yourself in peanut butter.
Yeah, baby. <laughs> Rip that fat cotton. Sorry, what the wondering. hell was that? Is that what like is you're wearing a porn thing? Sucking on, sucking on a vape, man. <laughs> what a racial porn are you watching? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I hadn't gone that route at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, you definitely look like you were, sound like you were doing some sort of like, you know, southern porn. Mm. Right. See, why does pre, everybody go that pre way? Free cotton gin. <laughs> Jesus Lord, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's our outro.